0: Please be seated. I prepared way too much. Seth told me, we, we talked about this, not that he was complaining. You know, maybe he has received complaints. When he goes out of town, I talk too long. Just so you know, if it becomes apparent that I need to stop. We'll turn this into a small series, and I'll pick it up next time. So just felt it necessary to say that because I really do have a lot here. Last time I had the opportunity to preach, we were with Paul on his second missionary journey in the city of Athens. Well, now Paul has moved on. In a sense, he's moved on, and yet we're going to look back a little bit because Paul has moved on to Corinth, from which he has written letters back to the Thessalonians where he had been prior to coming to Athens. So Paul... (laughs) after receiving his, his missionary call to run, run into Europe, had spent a little bit of time in Philippi where he ended up being beaten. And when he moved on from there, he comes to the city of Thessalonica or he came to the city of Thessalonica where he once again faced much opposition. Now, things started out well. He was there for about three weeks reasoning in the synagogue, but sometime after that, because usually because of his success among Gentiles or God-fearing Jews, the rest of the Jews got upset, whether provoked by jealousy or anything else, and they began to oppose Paul, and very quickly things in the city of Thessalonica began to deteriorate. And so because of the opposition, they eventually formed a mob. They grabbed hold of one of Paul's associates when they couldn't find him, and, uh, and threatened him. And so the believers or the brothers got together and decided it was time for Paul to move on so things didn't get out of hand. So Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians, at least in person, was actually fairly brief. Uh, we, we know for sure he was there the first three weeks. We don't know how much longer it took for things to fall apart. But fairly quickly on, so a matter of a few short months... Paul was kind of forced out. And so great was the opposition that when Paul went on down the road a little bit to a town called Berea, where he was well accepted, the Jews of Thessalonica actually chased him down there, stirred things up, and caused more trouble and havoc. And he was once again forced to go on, which is what took him to Athens, where we found him last time. So now from Athens, like I said, we've gone forward a few more weeks, maybe a couple of months. He's in Corinth. And uh, Timothy, whom he had sent back to Thessalonica because of his concern for the church there, has now come to him and reported to him that the church there not only has been planted, but is standing strong. And think about that. We have a church that was planted in the midst of serious persecution, serious tribulations, and yet it developed roots and it began to grow. A work of God's grace. Where there had been darkness, there was light. And the church began to grow. The persecution didn't die down necessarily. And Paul understands their, their place and their condition. So even though he has confidence in God that he will protect this church, he's also concerned. And that's why he sent Timothy back. He wanted to know, are they standing firm? Is, is the church, how is the church doing? So when he receives this report from Timothy... He actually rejoices. If you look back at chapter three, verse eight, very briefly, uh, this is where Timothy had just returned. In fact, I'll read in verse seven. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Timothy has come and said their faith stands firm. For now we really live because you stand firm in the Lord. So Paul took this as great news and yet he writes a letter anyway. But in this letter, it's kind of unique. Paul doesn't give a whole lot of instruction in this letter. He spends these first three chapters kind of rehearsing his relationship with, with those in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. He, he rehearses the relationship in his brief history with them, um, but he doesn't necessarily teach them. Rather, he, he simply contacts them to remind them. And it is you know one of the rules of teaching is that people need reminded much more than they need taught. So Paul doesn't, write. He, he longs to see them again. He wants to teach them more. He wants to help them grow in their faith. But he basically takes his time right here to remind them of what he has taught them and then to encourage them, and that's where we come to our passage in the phrase that is repeated, to excel still more. He says, look, I have taught you well. What I've told you was true. What I've told you, you, in fact, even the persecution you are suffering right now is proof of the truth of what I told you because I told you it would come. You know, wherever... God goes and sheds light in darkness. The darkness doesn't want to die too easily. And so there was conflict. And he said, you should not be upset or think this strange that you are suffering these things at this time, but rather recommit yourself. Excel still more. Now for our text, just these 12 verses, we're going to look at it in two basic parts. And I really am using this phrase, excel excel still more. Now the problem is, is that in the ESV, that phrase doesn't appear in that form. So you're wondering, what is he talking about? Well, if you look at the end of verse 1, in the ESV, I believe it says something like, do this more and more. And then if you go to the end of verse 10, we see again, but we urge you, brethren, to do this more and more. That is the same phrase as what I'm using from the NAS, Excel, Still, More. I think Excel, Still, More actually emphasizes the nuance or the meaning here. To do this more and more almost just sounds like do it repetitively. And I understand more and more sounds like quantity, but to me it almost sounds repetitively. You put the emphasis on the front end because that's where the word actually is, excel, to exceed, to redouble your efforts, to strive to do even better. Don't just repeat what you've been doing. Let's go for more. Let's excel. Let's exceed all that we've done before. And this church in Thessalonia. Just reminds me a little bit of you. It really does. It's not that we have been born in the midst of tribulation. Very few American Christians can claim that, okay? But, you guys are just solid. You guys are good. It's a good church. I see people doing many of the things that Paul's going to talk about this morning. My wife and I were discussing this just last night. What a privilege it is to be a part of a solid, mature, growing, committed bunch of people. So, But the message for you this morning is the same as Paul's then. The Thessalonians Thessalonians, excel still more. We're not done yet. We're not home yet. And so this morning we're going to look at this passage. Like I said, we're going to look at it in just two parts. Uh, We're going to look at uh, sanctification. And the reason I do this is because in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. I do think sanctification is a theme of the whole uh, of the whole passage. Sanctification, just in these next few verses, is used like three or four times, which also doesn't show up as readily in the ESV because it is translated in a couple of different places. Holiness. You are to work... Um, Verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification, whereas in the ESV it may say holiness. But I assure you that where I'm saying sanctification, whether it's sanctification, holiness, or be holy, it's the same word. And so I think we see a theme here. Paul is stressing to them this doctrine of sanctification. And then he goes on and gives us a few, we're going to look at three, areas of application, which are not meant to be exhaustive, but rather representative of this walk in the Christian faith, of this life of sanctification that God calls us to. So, first, sanctification. It's stressed in very clear terms, this is the will of God for you. Now, many people want to know the will of God for their lives. And I wish I could give you each an answer for the question you're asking in that area, but I can't. But God has not spoken to every individual for every specific thing you are to do, but he has spoken right here, and he has said, for this is the will of God for you. So I would think we would sit up and take notice. What is the will of God for you as believers? Your sanctification. So that sounds pretty important. And so we're going to spend a little time on that this morning. Let me start with a definition. Definitions can be tricky. Sometimes they're concise and so they're easy to remember, but then they don't say enough. Sometimes they're way too extreme and too wordy, and so you, you don't have an idea. You can't keep a clue in your mind as to what we're talking about. Let me give you a couple of definitions. My concise definition, the work of God by which he makes us holy. The work of God by which he makes us holy. That's actually good, and if you remember nothing but that this morning, then you have progressed. The work of God by which he makes us holy. The emphasis is on him, his work in us, and the result that he is out to make us holy. He's not out. He, he doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't rescue us only from the penalty of our sin. He doesn't leave us in our sin. He makes us holy. So it's a good definition. I'm opting for what I think is a better one from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is number 35. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now, I think that's better. I just think that gives us more to work with, and we're going to break that down and look at it in a few main points. One caution. When we, talk, when we talk about sanctification, people often get this confused with justification. And I say that whether you have ever had that problem or not, that's been a problem in the history of the church since about the 12th century. Okay, there's a confusion. This morning we were talking about sanctification. Justification is the declaration by God of your acceptability to him. He declares you righteous. He doesn't make you righteous. He declares you righteous and imputes the righteousness of Christ to you. He counts it as yours. That's justification. So that is dealing with the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. The penalty that all our sin deserves is the judgment of God. That's justification. That's what that deals with. Sanctification deals with the pollution of sin. The pollution of sin is dealt with in sanctification. Like justification, it is the work of God through and through. And like justification, it is dealing with the sin problem, but it's dealing with it in a different aspect. One deals with the penalty. Sanctification deals with the pollution. Now, according to our definition, definition, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It is His work. It is a work, though, in which we are not passive. It's a work in which we do participate. Now, at the end of the day, it is still all the work of God, but we do not just simply sit around and wait for God to somehow move us with some special infusion of the Spirit to make us act good. He gives us commands to follow. Since he has given us ears to hear and we hear in his word that we are to be holy as he is holy, we set about to accomplish holiness. But at the end of the day, it is still the work of God and he works in us by his word and by his spirit to bring this about. We see this very concisely in Philippians 2, where Paul tells them, just as you have obeyed in my absence or in my presence, so now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But why? Because God is at work in you. The response to the work of God in you is that you get yourself to work. So it is the work of God, but it is a work of God in which we are not passive. The confession, the catechism goes on to say that this renewal which God brings about is a renewal in the whole man. There is an entirety to the work of God in sanctification. There is nothing left out. Now, this is really, I find this interesting. This corresponds to what we talk about, the doctrine of total depravity, where because of the sin of the first man, sin has affected and corrupted man's nature. This is how we're all born. And we say this idea of total depravity means every part of us has been touched by sin. So in our intellect, in our feelings, in our will, we no longer want to submit. We've, all these things have been corrupted by sin. Sanctification deals with this. And it is the corresponding work of God to the curse of sin. And He leaves nothing out. Nothing out. We do not, we, we are not, there's not one part of us where we treasure or cling to a certain sin that God keeps His hands off of. You know, what do we sing when we sing joy to the world? You know, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Well, that's not just out there. That's in here. Far as the curse is found, it's a transformation which is throughout. It may come unevenly. It may come in fits and starts. He may deal deal with you and your sin in one instance at a time or one specific thing, but ultimately he leaves nothing out because salvation, sanctification, I'm sorry, is the renewal of the whole man. The whole man. It says also then in our definition that we are are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. We are to be made more and more Christ-like and are enabled by the work of his Spirit to more and more die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now there's a couple of big words. For those of you who like words, I like words. Mortification It talks about what we die to. Vivification talks about what we are to live for or to live unto. And this is what we're talking about here. Paul uses these phrases again in uh, Romans 13. He talks about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians, he talks about the things that we are to put off and the things that we are to put on. This is sanctification, what we die to and what we live for. This is enabled by the Spirit, instructed by the Word for us to keep growing. We, we, We put some things away. We no longer cling to some things. And it's not just corruptions. Sometimes it's just things that are not necessarily bad in themselves, but they hold us back for what it is we are to pursue. And God is at work to bring this about. This sanctification is never the grounds of our justification or of our salvation. Remember, this is the work of God. This is where the church has often been in the error. We, we put so much emphasis on what we must do as we follow after God that we somehow, because of sin in us, come to believe that this itself, this work that we do, this sin that we put away, this holiness we try to accomplish, we come to believe that this somehow has become the grounds of our acceptance to God. And it is not so. This is the work of God which follows justification, all of which flows from God's work of salvation in the individual. So he receives All the glory. So we work hard, but this is not the grounds of our acceptance before God. So all of this is the work of God's salvation for his people, for his elect. And to use another phrase you may or may not have heard, the ordo salutis is not fractured or broken. Now the idea of ordo salutis is just the idea of the order of what God accomplishes, how he accomplishes his salvation. And so if we look through... Down through time, God has chosen a people for himself before the foundation of the world. He has given and sent his son to pay the price which buys their freedom. He sends forth his spirit and he renews people who then hear the gospel and respond. And once God has done that, he sets about to renew his people after the image of Christ, who is the perfect image of God the Father, who himself is the picture of holiness, one who has never violated the law of God, one who has fulfilled all of its requirements, the pattern which he is making you like. But in this order of salvation, in this great work of God, he does not get to the part of sanctification and then somehow quit. He doesn't leave a little piece. He doesn't take something off the table. This is all part of the work of God in you. He is set about to gather to himself, to adorn his creation with trophies of grace. And by the time he sets them up on the mantle, (laughs) boy, they're going to shine. They're going to shine. He's not leaving it covered with scuffs and fingerprints and other little pieces and bits that he somehow couldn't deal with. No, he's going to make you holy. He's going to make you perfect. This is the work of God. In fact, so sure, so, so plainly do the scriptures teach us this, that if God has saved... He will sanctify. And if there is no sanctification, then there has been no salvation. There has been no salvation. I don't say that to scare you. (laughs) I don't say that to scare you. But that is is how important this work of sanctification, the presence of ever-increasing holiness is. Now, I want to sum all that up. I love this idea of biblical tension, and I know I've talked about that many, many times, but things that we have to hold that give us the boundaries of our belief, outside of which you're in trouble, but inside of which you're holding an orthodox doctrine. So let me just give a few of these. I didn't necessarily order them uh, in some absolute sense, but let me give you what, is an, what are the essentials of sanctification, an exercise in biblical tension. One, God's work, and yet we are not passive, we actively participate. There will be progress in the whole man, yet not perfection in this life. We will be perfected in holiness at our death or when God calls us to himself. But there will be progress, though not perfection in this life. We seek to please God. He, he says that. He talks about the walk of the Thessalonians in verse 1. He says, uh, you've received from us instruction as to how you are to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk before he tells them to excel still more. We do this to please God. We seek to please God, but it does not become, it has never been, the foundation or a satisfaction for our sin. It's not. This is not the work of atonement. This is not adding to the work of Christ. This is flowing from the work of Christ. We seek to please God, but it is not a satisfaction for sin. And then finally, we must work at it, but it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us. We have been saved, and because now he is dealing with the corruption of sin or the pollution of sin, we are being increasingly set free. So, if there is some kind of sin you're harboring, if there's some area of your life you don't want to let it go, well, you're thinking very short-sighted, let it go, let it go. You know, God has called you not just to be saved and be free from the penalty, but to actually walk in freedom from this power and this pollution of sin. You don't have to be a slave to that thing which you, can't, you think controls you. You don't have to be. It is the work of God. There's the power of the Spirit in your life. You can let it go. You can walk away from it. If you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, quit it. <laughs> if you're seeing something you shouldn't be seeing, knock it off. But it's not just the prohibition. It's the privilege you've been called to. You're not a slave to it anymore. You do not have to lose in that contest. Now, when Paul has mentioned sanctification, which I said is, I think is a theme, he then gives us three areas... We'll deal with these much more quickly, but he gives us three areas. I don't believe this is an exhaustive list for our sanctification, but it's an important list. And the first one is sexual immorality. We see this beginning in verse 3, after the will of God for you, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel, it says in the ESV, to control his own body in sanctification and honor. I think that's a good, I actually like to control his own body here better. I think that's a more clear, better communication of the idea being presented by this. The idea that we are to live lives in this area, in our physical areas, our physical bodily appetites in this area, we are to live lives of self-control. We are not to be given in to our passions. He con- compares and contrasts with those of the Gentiles. So we are to be people of self-control in this area and not to be driven by lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, those, those, that, those that live in such a lifestyle as they are controlled and consumed by their physical passions in this area of physical intimacy, those are people who do not know God. There is to be a distinction between those who don't know God and those who do. And this is one of the areas. Now, why does Paul deal with this? Well, he deals with it first, and he gives us the most verses on it, because it's a near universal problem. And you'd like to think we wouldn't have to preach this in the church, but we have to. We have to. Okay, The church has taken on, at least I can only speak in our context, in our country, in our culture, the church has taken on too many of the characteristics of the world, and I'm ashamed to say that even in this, we are copying, mimicking the world rather than the word of God. Okay, what is sexual immorality? The word there is actually the root word for where we get pornography, but it is the general term from the Old Testament in talking about sexual immorality or uncleanness in general. And the easiest way to remember that is, is that God has designed marriage for the expression of this physical intimacy, and anything outside of that is just plain wrong. God has designed life. God has designed these relationships. God has designed this to be a blessing in this relationship. Uh, it serves its purposes. It serves God's purposes. But anything outside of that is wrong. No matter how much we want to explain it, explain it away, no matter how much we want to rationalize it, it's just wrong. And that's something that we need reminded of. And the people of God ought not to be following the world's example in this, but following the word of God in this. He goes on in verse 6 and says that no man should defraud or transgress or defraud his brother in the matter. This is now pointing not to just general uncleanness, but to to things like adultery, where where your desire is to have someone who belongs to someone else or who who at least does not belong to you. And he says, watch out. The Lord is the avenger of these things. I've warned you of this. You know, these things are usually done in secret. Uh, for some reason, there is something in human nature that, that, that understands the uncleanness of this because we do it quietly. <laughs> and we try to hide it and cover it up. Okay, But God is the avenger of these things. He is the God who sees. He is the God who knows. And to reject his word on this is to reject him. This is the near. Universal problem. And we are called to be distinct in this. You know, it's interesting. There was a book. I haven't read the book because it's very long. But there's a book called Sex and Culture by a guy named Unwin. I have read a summary paper on this book because the book itself is eight or 900 pages of statistics. He studied something like 80 plus cultures throughout the history of the world. And he said in every culture where sexual ethics were held to a very high standard. Now, where did they get this standard? Who knows? You know, general revelation, God's common grace, but any time the ethics were high, the culture flourished, often resulting in an empire which lasted for centuries. And every time these sexual ethics were degraded and not held, the culture fell apart, which is both a cause of the culture falling apart and then a fruit of the culture falling apart as things get more and more degrading. You were called to better than this, better than this, You are not just a physical being, you are a spiritual being, and God calls you to walk in a higher sense than this. There is freedom even from this. This one is the one that seems so powerful, so controlling, so pervasive, and yet God has promised in this work of sanctification, there is victory even in this. You do not have to be a slave to this. Paul speaks about sexual immorality. He moves on. He moves on. If we drop down to verse 9, there's no longer a prohibition here. Rather, Paul is now speaking to a people he knows and a people he loves and a people he's actually apparently impressed by. He says, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And in fact, in verse 10, he talks about they even have a reputation that their practice is not just for one another, but has grown beyond their boundaries now to love those even throughout the region of Macedonia, which goes beyond even their city. And Paul, he tells them, love one another. Now, there's a lot of one another's in the New Testament. There's a brief list. Love one another, serve one another, honor one another, accept one another. Admonish, care for, comfort, provide one another. These things are throughout the New Testament. And Paul says, under this general heading, love one another, serve one another, they don't even need taught. It's in, it's in this area that I am impressed with you. I really am. We, we will sit sometimes in our session meetings. For those of you who don't know, a session is a board of elders. First thing we do is we talk about you. That's our chance to get caught up on gossip is what I'm saying. No, no, no. But we talk about you. We talk about the needs of the church. We talk about who is struggling, who is having a problem, who is having a need, who is whatever the issue may be, who is sick, who is absent, Who you know, whatever it may be, we talk about you. And then we spend time praying for you. But in our conversations, it often comes up that when we get around to checking up on somebody or to following up on a situation, another one of you has already been there. And I can just tell you, speaking for the session, that thrills us to no end. It's almost as if you have been taught by God <laughs> to love one another. Very close parallel here. It's such a privilege. It really is. But Paul doesn't allow him to sit there, does he? He doesn't allow him to sit there. He says, hey, at the end of verse 10, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Okay, There's probably someone here who's fallen through the cracks. You know, Let's go after him. Let's excel still more. This is reminiscent of you all, and there's such a joy for being part of it. But let's push on. Finally, we come down to uh, Paul's verse 11 and 12. Our phrase, excel still more in 10, seems to address what went before and what comes after. Uh, Rather than repeating it, he just kind of connected grammatically here. So excel still more in your love for one another and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And attend to your own business and work with your hands just as he commanded you. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So here we have... Oh, I had a hard time labeling this section. There is there is a public testimony aspect or component to what we're seeing here, but there's also this idea of how we're relating to others even outside the body of Christ. And he begins in this little section with kind of a paradox. He says, make it your ambition, or the ESV says, to aspire to lead a quiet life. And really, you could translate that, make it your ambition to not be too ambitious which I find, it, I find it interesting. Stuff like that kind of catches. Make it your ambition to not be too ambitious, but rather he upholds the virtues and the values of a quiet life. A quiet life. A quiet life characterized by avoiding, avoidance of unrest. A life that is disciplined, that is steady in its lifestyle, in its vocation, in its God-given calling, whatever that may be. A quiet life. Now, Paul writing to the Thessalonians, there may be one issue here that that is affecting what he's saying here. It appears to be that there were some who, when Paul spoke about the return of Christ, thought it was going to be tomorrow, (laughs) or next week, or a couple weeks down the road. But either way, they thought it was much more imminent. And so some of them, it is supposed, it makes some sense, that they maybe even quit their jobs and stopped taking care of their responsibilities, thinking, well, why bother? Jesus is coming back. Okay, so he could be speaking to that. Um, that that has some that carries some weight. If you if we read it, if we were going to read verses thirteen and following, we, we can see that there was definitely concern about the Lord's return. Their concern in the following section is what about our, our friends, our relatives, our family members who have already died? Are they going to somehow miss the return of Christ? And is this gonna cost them somehow? And he assures them, absolutely not. They're better off than we are. But for some who said Christ is coming soon, that makes everything I'm doing today meaningless, and so they stopped taking care of their responsibilities. He reminds them to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, you know, work with your hands, just as we commanded you. They, these people supposedly had become. Uh, you know, well, well. One, you you end up if you don't have something to fill your time, you end up dealing with everybody else's stuff, or putting your nose in everybody else's stuff. And he's saying, don't do that. They may have gotten to the point where they even found themselves needy, because he talks about you should be working so as not to be in any need, not to be a dependent. So this is a, this is. It's a call to lead a quiet life, yes, and to avoid unrest, yes. But it's also a call to simply continue in a disciplined, steady lifestyle, not to become busybodies or dependents on others. And he says that this actually affects the way the people outside of the church see us, so that you will behave properly, in verse 12, toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul says... This should not be so. You should not be living unruly lives. We are to tend to the duties of our worldly calling with diligence, not idleness. And as much as it depends on us, we should not allow ourselves to fall in any need because it affects our testimony and the testimony of the church. You know, there is a certain privilege, joy and a privilege to a life of regularity. I have at times complained of my life because it's boring. My life is boring. you know. But most of the time I've learned to appreciate that. There's a lack of unrest. there's a lack of drama, there's a certain regularity, there's a certain habit, you know that, that is just pleasant. Uh, when, I, when I see the unrest and the turmoil I see in other lives, I am more and more thankful for mine. I think Paul is calling us to that and calling us to see that as a blessing of the Lord, rather than merely boring. He is also calling us to be independent. Being independent, and he means here financially, you're not to allow yourself as much as you can to fall into dependency. You're not to look to others to meet your needs. You are to work to satisfy your own needs and that of your family because independence avoids entanglements which can lead to other difficulties. Debt leads to enslavement, the one you owe, or the one who takes care of all your needs, or the one who provides for all you could desire, whether a person, an organization of any kind, or a government. These things have influence over you. These things sap your independence. They actually inhibit your ability to walk according to God's dictates because you need them. I heard a pastor one time give me a phrase a long time ago that stuck in my head, any regard to the government. Okay, you know, this is not, yeah, let me just throw it out there. Any government big enough to provide all your needs is strong enough to take away all your rights. There is an absolute truth to that, and in this day of so much easy money flying onto into our bank accounts through the mail, we might want to take heed to that. That is not a good thing. You know, in a day when, when more than 50 percent of the country receives some sort of income from the government on a daily basis and is growing quickly, we might want to take heed to that. Anybody strong enough, big enough to provide for all your needs and to take care of you is strong enough to take away all your rights. And then, who will be free to serve God according to the dictates of conscience? You might want to be careful there. The one you owe owns you. He says to strive as much as it depends on you to not be in any need. So we should be striving to be free, that we might be free to love and serve one another, that we might be free to excel in those things, that we might have extra, that we might be the ones that are generous. You know, in the history of the church at the time of one of the Caesars, Julian the Apostate, who had left the faith, he did. He, he wrote a note. I can't remember the original source. Couldn't tell you where to go Wipe, look it up. But he was shocked as he took note of the Christians and said, look, they take care of all their own poor and they even come and get some of ours. You know, and he could not deny the love that was being expressed among the church and beyond the church. Okay, So, we should be striving to be free, that we might be free to serve one another, that we might be able to be generous, that we might serve the Lord who has redeemed us. After all, we were bought with a price, and we are not free to serve just ourselves. We serve Him. We serve Him, and we make it our ambition to grow up in all things into the image of Christ, realizing... That it is God who is at work to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the world sees these things and takes notice. Now, just for some points of applications as we go to leave. As I said, this list was not exhaustive. I think they are representative and there are various categories. I wanted to be more specific this morning. So based on our ages, children, you get to be included this morning. We don't have many children, but we want to include you. Children, God's call on your life and in the area in which he wants you to grow right now is for you to honor your father and mother, to love your brother and sister. And if you have been doing this, fantastic. But let's excel still more. Parents, you are to love and honor one another. One of the greatest blessings you can give your children is that they know that you love one another and you honor one another, and you show respect to one another. Make it your ambition for these children to give them a peaceful home where God is worshipped and where they are taught and where order and regularity reigns. Parents, excel still more. Those of you who are in that, that span of life where you are career people and you are operating your business as best you can in honesty and integrity, excel still more. For those of you in the later years of life, you understand that's a euphemistic term for old people. Okay, I can say that because I love old people. I have no, no, no shame, no qualms about this. Old people, you are not exempt from this. In my own family, I was raised in a Christian household, which was the fruit of a Christian household. Okay, But somewhere along the line in about my grandparents' generation or so, they got to a certain point in life where they, they retired. And they retired from church, too, and I never understood that. And when asked about it, they would say, well, I've done my bit, it's somebody else's turn. That ought not be so. That ought not be so. That actually made me wonder, well, is this all true? Is this all worth it? Is this all, does this all have the value which you raised me to think it had? Excel still more. You are not exempt. You're not allowed to retire from the household of God's family. You are here to share your wisdom as the older are to teach the younger. You are here to serve one another. Some of you, because you're retired, you've got all the time in the world to give. I know Frank Robleski, our head deacon, who probably would not want me to say this, told me what a joy it was to actually find this church and an opportunity to serve. It gave purpose to his retirement. Excel still more as you serve one another. And when you can no longer serve, show up. Show up. That is so encouraging. When I saw Alice Robertson walk in there, you know, just three weeks ago, at 92 years old with her walker, it costs her something to get here. And it says something about what we're doing here, about the value of the gospel. It says that she still believes what she has claimed and testified to believe all these years. So, in as much as it depends on you, And as much as you're able, until you're unable, show up. You are a great encouragement to the rest of us. And we have many here that are as good of an example as Alice. Excel still more. Now, when you can't come, we get it. We get it, but you can pray for us. And we trust that you do. But excel still more. The Lord has more for us. We're not just saved from the penalty. We are increasingly being saved from the power and the control of sin in our lives. Let us commit ourselves to purity, to loving one another, to serving one another. And as he has said to the Thessalonians then, let's excel still more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this work, this gift of salvation which you have wrought in us. Lord, we do not take it lightly. You have saved us from the cost and the penalty of our sins so that there is no longer left for us any fear of judgment. But Lord, you promised us even more than that. You have promised us that you would free us up from every spot, every stain, every wrinkle, everything that would consume, devour, and enslave us to our former self, to sin. Lord, help us to believe in you for this. Help us to pursue this. Help us to give our all to it. Not so that we can rest upon our achievements, but just so that we can continually see more and more the work of God in our lives, that we might rejoice more fully, and that we might offer up praises that you'll find pleasing. Lord, continue what you have begun. Glorify yourself in this place and in us as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.